So, Claudia, let's get right into it. Um, what do you think uh, about the role of defenders in just green transitions? And uh, you have also written and proposed the notion of biosphere defenders. What is the role in this? Well, when we are talking about biosphere defenders, it is this notion of biosphere, meaning life, and sphere, meaning the earth. So. As lawyers, we tend to fragment ourselves. We tend to either become very specialized in climate law or biodiversity law or pollution law. And even more, we also fragment between environmental law, human rights law, and other branches of law, such as corporate law, criminal law, and so on. So the idea with this uh, concept of biosphere defenders is not to reinvent the wheel, is really to build on all what it has been uh, developed so far, especially when we're thinking about international human rights law, but enrich and expand this understanding of defenders as those that are contributing and who have in common that they are protecting these vital nature and nature contributions to people upon which a broad range of rights depend on. We see that the, the emerges of the term human rights defenders dates to the 1970s specifically, and then it took though until 1998 when the UN General Assembly adopted the declaration on defenders. So we see that these processes take quite long and it was until 2000 that the word specifically environmental human rights defenders started to be coined among others by the UN Special Rapporteur uh, on Human Rights and Environment than uh, John Knox, but also other uh, organizations. And this was critical because so many people who were defending the environment were being killed, harassed, and organizations such as Global Witness put the spotlight on these crises that it's, although it's more strong in certain areas of the world, it is global, especially if we consider the interconnections in terms of supply chains and so on. However, what we do in this recent paper that is just about to, to publish together with uh, two colleagues, Andrea Nardi and Lisa Baruma, and also another one that I, I wrote alone, is this idea that it's equally important to focus in these uh, threats and these uh, killings that sadly environmental human rights defenders are experiencing in so many parts of the world, but in the voice of uh, environmental human rights defenders, it is also necessary to put the spotlight in which are their contributions. What are, are these positive change that they are uh, proposing? So then changing f the narrative from this emphasis in that they are victims of uh, violence to this idea that they are agents of change with the need of political recognition. Also this idea that they are not anti-state, anti-development. They're not contrarians uh, to development, but instead they are inspirations for just uh, sustainability. So this idea that it's not anti-development, but alternative ways of looking at the well-being. 
that we can all learn from that. Mm-hmm. And it is also this idea from this very individual perspective of right holders to a more holistic understanding that they are individuals, but they are also collectives. And this is the collective sustainability, just transitions that we are wanting to achieve. And here a critical right that defenders have uh, mobilized and used in their work. It's how information, participation, access to justice that are procedural elements of the right to a healthy environment allow us to achieve substantive elements of this right, which these elements have been quite significantly elaborated by UN special procedures, including the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Environment, David Boyd, and really specifying how these procedural elements allow us to have safe and sufficient water, clean air, a non-toxic environment, healthy and sustainable food, healthy ecosystems and biodiversity and safe climate. So very much a more holistic approach to looking at it, which really coincides with scientific findings, for instance, in the context of of planetary boundaries, that sees not only climate in isolation with biodiversity and other uh, planetary challenges, but in their interaction, because that's the way it affects from the very global to the very local. Oh, I think that's a very uh, interesting perspective that you bring to the conversation. Um, so moving uh, from understanding what uh, the Biosphere Defenders is, could you give us uh, some real-life examples that you can connect to this uh, the framework? Yeah. So we have examples all around the world, uh, and some that are using information, public participation, for instance, exercising the rights of freedom of expression and opinion, and and going to manifestations and so on, which is very important to really raise this awareness. However, what sometimes people don't have in their imaginary of who is an environmental uh, human rights defender or a biosphere defender is these people that are using the law to enact change, who can be paralegals in an isolated community, or who can be students participated in a legal clinic, or that are uh, people, lawyers working in public interest uh, litigation, not only in climate that has been more of the focus of uh, recent discussions, but also if you see more deeply some of these cases, uh, especially in the context of Colombia, you see how both the defenders weave the right to a healthy environment with the right to food, with the right to life, and rights of nature as well, which is another area that the concept of biosphere defenders that I was talking about, it's really bringing together these two movements that sometimes people tend to see them as separate, but the biosphere defender concept really unites them. And very concrete examples come, for instance, uh, from Africa. Uh, We see the case of uh, Phyllis Omido, which in many senses, some people could categorize her as in a situation of vulnerability, which she was completely, and she continues to be in many ways. But uh, she was working for a smelter company, uh, which was uh, recycling batteries 
but was doing so in a way that was not environmentally appropriate. They didn't have an environmental impact assessment. And at yeah. that time, she was working for that company. And uh, when she raised those concerns, they weren't taken seriously. So she realized that people in her village were starting to get sick. And this was because the water that they were drinking was being polluted. So she took the case to court. And this is a case that was won by her and her uh, community and her organizations that she later on founded. And uh, she continues to work in this issue. And uh, what is important here, and I want to highlight, is that we need to also change the narrative and change how we envision who are the people in vulnerable situations. Often it's equated vulnerability with powerlessness and weakness, and we see that that's not the case. I mean, the case of Phyllis Amido and so many others are really inspiring, which because they are successful, because they are changing the status quo and really questioning these power dynamics is that they are having this transformative change. And this is in the case of an urban setting. But we also find that in other uh, spaces, such as, uh, for instance, the Amazon, we have the case of Nemontenequimo, who is an Amazonian leader uh, who together with many allies, including the National Human Rights Institution in Ecuador, Defensoria del Pueblo, she and together with uh, her group and her indigenous people, with the Waroni people, argued that they hadn't had the right to prior consultation in areas that were wanting to get exploited for all exploration and exploitation in the rainforest. And as we know, the Amazon rainforest provides us with critical yeah. contributions, both for biodiversity, but also for climate mitigation and adaptation. And again, they won this ruling. And uh, now, thanks to that, they're going to be more than 500,000 acres of uh, rainforest uh, protected thanks to her efforts and the many allies that she and together with her group and many other Amazonian nationalities uh, managed to, uh, to do. And just uh, a final example, now we are giving you an example from Africa, from Latin America, now we go to Asia Pacific, a group of students were the ones catalyzing this request for the advisory opinion at the International Court of Justice that would delineate the obligations of state and clarify in relation to, to climate change. And this request will be very important, not only for climate change, but as we have discussed so far, climate change is affecting biodiversity, nature, and all these nature contributions to people to not only people from the global south, but also people from the global north. So this is something that started as a university initiative from these uh, students in Pacific Island states who managed to convince the Vanuatu government to take this initiative and uh, finally the UN General Assembly requesting this advisory opinion. And we're now waiting to see what will be 
the, the result, but regardless of the result, what this teaches is that nobody or not a group is too powerless or weak to make a really transformative uh, difference. So we all, doesn't matter whether we're working on civil society organizations or academia or in a local community or negotiating in international human rights treaty negotiations or within multilateral environmental agreements, they are distinct contributions and all are very important. Oh, thank you, Claudia. Those are really, really good examples. They really do give someone a picture of uh, what's happening on the ground and the reality of the people who are defending the environment. Uh, but also, I like how you emphasize, emphasize on the agency and show that these people are powerful. It just makes you feel as me and you as individuals could also uh, uh, work towards making a change without uh, feeling so powerless and hopeless. So that's a really good uh, inspiration. Um, something that tends to be forgotten in the conversations is uh, the role of women and I think uh, I'd like to ask you what is the role of women in the biosphere defenders in this green justice uh, transition? Yeah, so throughout time we have seen the critical role of women in the governance of socio-ecological systems and also in the negotiation of international treaties, not only environmental or human rights, but globally. Someone that I find really inspiring is Wangari Mathai. Mm -hmm. She said that we have a special responsibility to the ecosystems of our planet. And she was working in a time where the environmental crisis wasn't acknowledged or understood by many in a way that she did. Mm. As you know, she's the first uh, black African woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And in the critical time that we're facing now with wars and the planetary crisis, she was clear back then that we cannot think about peace without justice and without understanding these socio-ecological dynamics. Uh, so again, an example of how she teamed up with people from the villages, especially in rural Kenya, but then became the global, uh, with special emphasis in Africa, of the Green Belt Movement, which has a belt with all, all these nature contributions to people. Uh, that again shows us that yes, civil and political rights are critically important because if she wouldn't have been able to raise her boys, to be able to work in a context that was dominated back then by, by men, including in academia. Yes. She has an amazing biography that I, uh, for those that haven't read it, I really recommend uh, to read it. It shows how, again, because she was so powerful and she was not only questioning the status quo in terms of injustice or in terms of destruction of the environment, but also gender issues, is that she was threatened and put in a very uh, difficult position. But if we go more uh, put into context women's rights, it dates back to the 1972 Stockholm Conference, which was where the seeds of uh, transnational environmental law were planted uh, in Stockholm. And uh, since then, 
there was the only other prime minister apart from Olof Palme from Sweden was Indira Gandhi from India. And she gave a very powerful speech on behalf of global south countries where she questioned the values and agency that was valued at that time and many of her questioning becomes relevant just as then as now about the efficient man this idea that producing more in a limited period of time even though it destroyed nature even though it didn't respect social relationships was what was being valued and she questioned why other professions, other groups, other agency wasn't sufficiently taken into account. If you see the Stockholm Declaration, you see man has the right, man has the responsibility. And these notions, of course, women are subsumed within the category men, and that was the language of that time, but it really reflects what needed to be changed. And finally, the Rio summit is where the full and effective participation of women was specifically acknowledged. And we see that, for instance, the Convention Against Discrimination uh, of Women, there are not only civil and political rights, but are, there are also economic, social and cultural rights and the agency of women, for instance, in food security of their families, which is intimately related to ecosystems, in, uh, especially when we're talking about agriculture. It's, uh, it, it's really important. And then now that we have the relatively recent recognition of the right to a clean, healthy and sustainable environment, this required the agency of many groups, among many women's groups and also individuals. Uh, for instance, the ambassador for Costa Rica, she had a critical leading role in making this recognition of the right to a clean, healthy and sustainable environment happen. As we know, there was a UN Human Rights Council Resolution that then informed the UN General Assembly Resolution. So we see that back from 1972 and even before we can think about the Chipkog movement in India, even though they didn't have the category of human rights defenders, environmental human rights defenders or biosphere defenders, what they had in common is that they were individually and collectively catalyzing this change for safeguarding these nature and nature contributions to people, which are not necessarily only for us as present generations, but also for future generations of people and other living beings to thrive. Um, I'm really uh, thankful for that uh, explanation. And I really, really like and resonate with Wangari Mazai because I'm also Kenyan and I, she's been a real inspiration and her work continues to be the foundation of uh, environmental justice in Kenya till date. So thank you for that. Um, I think uh, we're going to wind up there and uh, I want to thank you, Claudia, for, for giving us a good session and, and uh, really enjoyed hearing uh, about the work that you're doing. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks. 